This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. Today, people are working outside of my house, and you probably won't hear them. But if you do, thanks for your patience. Today, I'm talking to Jose James, who released one of my favorite Christmas albums of 2021, Merry Christmas from Jose James. James is a jazz vocalist for the hip-hop era, with the aesthetics of both worlds shaping his music. Merry Christmas from Jose James successfully revisits the sound of the classic jazz trio plus singer, giving us a very familiar sound that puts the voice and melody front and center, while giving the singer a context in which you can hear him, in this case, interact with the band. His versions remind you what's good about Christmas standards and some of the classic versions without sounding like it's part of another time. We had a good conversation last fall and chewed on questions about jazz as well as Christmas and had a lot more good stuff than I had time to run last year. I ran part of it, but today I'm returning to Jose James for a more in-depth conversation. We'll start with his version of Just the Two of Us from 2018's tribute to singer Bill Withers' Lean on Me. Then we'll be back on the other side with Jose James on 12 Songs. I see the crystal raindrops fall and the beauty of it all is when the sun comes shining through. To make those rainbows in my mind when I think of you sometime and I want to spend some time with you. Just the two of us. Can make it if Are you in Spain right now? Yeah, I'm in Malaga. Okay. What? Why Spain? What? What's What's there right now? Um, I've been touring in Europe since June. Oh, okay. Because I'm, I'm based in Amsterdam now, so we're doing a tour of No Beginning, No End Two, my last record, and yeah, doing like Spain and UK, Europe, Germany, France. Um, yeah, right up until the Christmas tour, right. which starts on the end of November in, in San Francisco. So it's like a, a seamless, whole, like, long, beautiful, like, return to music, which has been been pretty cool. Yeah. How long ago did you start uh, playing live? Um, this year, you mean? Or yes, like- this year. When did you feel, when first, did you feel good enough? Like when did you feel confident enough to go out and perform? I think it was in June. Yeah, I mean, we did a couple things. Um, my wife Tali and I did a couple things in Amsterdam, but it was like live stream. You know, it was no audience. Um, I think the first thing we did was like yeah, June, July, and we started doing festivals, and it was like oh yeah, people, wow, yeah. nice, ah, let's ah, go, ah, ah, ah. yeah. Was there was there a moment of adjustment? Because I have to tell you, I still right now I look at crowds, and part of me gasps. It's like the idea mm. of the idea of being among that many people is both exciting and terrifying at the same time. Um, yeah, and I, I'd imagine what's you know how does that work from your side of the stage? That's a great question. I mean, I think it's um, the first adjustment was just like remembering how to do the other stuff, like <laughs> take a flight, you know what I mean? Like sure. check into a hotel every day, you know, be on time, it, you know, wake up at five in the morning and 
get on a flight at seven, you know, every day, like that kind of stuff was like, Oh yeah. Did I used to do this? Wow. This is insane. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, like, like just remembering like playing with people. I mean, for the longest time, Tali and I played together, you know, because we were quarantined together. So we played duo shows for like a year. Um, And then for us to play with musicians was like, that was an adjustment. And, you know, I guess what's funny is like how every country has dealt with the situation. That's been fascinating. Like we played in um, Sofia. Um, I'm trying to remember where Sofia is even. I have to look it up, honestly. And it was for like 15,000 people, you know? It was like open air festival. And it was like, whoa, this is, um, I haven't seen this many people for two years, like literally, you know? And that was, that was pretty crazy, you know? And every venue has been different. We played Montreux, um, and that was like their return to Montreux Jazz Fest. It was probably like 200 people seated, very like sedate. So we've, we've kind of seen how everyone is dealing with the, um, the pandemic culturally and, and musically in real time. And that has been really fascinating. Right. You know, Spain has been awesome. You know, we're, we're loving it here. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. So I have to ask, what came first? the idea of doing a Christmas album or the idea of doing a sort of a classic jazz quartet album? Oh, great, great question. Um, I think the idea of, I think they both came together because I did a, a duo show with Aaron Parks at Rockwood Music Hall it was my last show before we moved to Amsterdam and um, it was, it was last winter and it was so good. I mean, Aaron Parks is so gifted and he's so serious. Um, so the level, it wasn't like a, like kitty Christmas show. You know, it was like a very like Aaron Parks, like this is super deep, like um, Bill Evans meets, you know, um, Tony Bennett kind of, that was the vibe. And I think, you know, if you know Aaron, like he's very, um, what's the word? He's, he has very high standards. So when he likes something, it means something. It's really like, wow, he's into it. And he, we finished the show and he was like, that was really, that was good actually, you know? And I was like, yeah, of course, you know, he's like, (laughs) And, and we kind of said, like, maybe we should, we should do a Christmas album, you know, because this vibe is so good, you know. And he was referencing, like, Bill Evans. I guess he played um, some Christmas songs, you know. So it, was, it already was kind of trending toward that, like, 1950s Miles Davis-associated world. And when I thought about um, making the album... I knew it had to sort of live in that space. And it's, it's, I think of it as like Frank Sinatra sitting in with the Miles Davis quartet, you know? That's how I kind of conceptualized it.
Chestnuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost snipping at your nose you so The reason I ask was because the treatment is sort of so classic and you know and and there was a time obviously where people made these kinds of sort of jazz versions that that it was kind of like what you know did did deciding what would be an interesting thing to do in this format and a kind of a classic thing to do with this musical format or what would be an interesting musical interesting format for this musical idea mm. well I, I knew it had to be like lcr and i wanted to record the tape and i like i definitely was very specific um and thankfully, since, you know, it's on my label, um, we just support whatever the artist wants. And it's the first time that I proposed an idea and he was like, uh, OK, I was like, hey, man, we got to do like 1950s LCR panning left, center, right. Like I was like drums and I, I really spent a lot of time before I proposed it. I was like, drums have to be right. And, you know, blues and the abstract truth, Oliver Nelson, like that's the reference the trio, you know, and I, I gave him like all this, like very, very specific. And he kind of like sat with it for a second and was like, I trust you. Like, let's, let's try this, you know, because he wasn't there either. Um, so I picked the studio and, and we really, we went in and, and for me, it's, it's a, it's, it's a great question that you're asking because it's kind of the heart of the, of the matter of the whole album. For me, the sound of Christmas really is that sound you know like when i when i listen to frank sinatra or ben crosby or ella you know it's kind of like this there's like the pop versions of of the 50s and 40s and 50s and there's the jazz versions but like you're saying they're recorded essentially the same way because you couldn't do anything else you know back then yeah um so that to me just is the sound it's the sound of jazz but it's also the sound of christmas in this interesting way and and i wanted that warmth of tape and i wanted that sort of like there's just a certain quality that you can't describe but you feel when everybody's in the room and they're cutting it together and it feels like a moment you know that is sort of captured for all time and when i listen to the christmas song the Nat Cole version, that's what I feel, you know, and, and I did a lot of research on all of these songs and the different versions of the songs and, you know, how many times Nat Cole recorded that song and the whole thing with Capitol. And um, so I, I just ended up kind of saying like, I don't want to make a, a trendy Christmas album. I want to make a timeless Christmas album. And Tali and I had written Christmas in New York already. So we had that. We'd been sitting on that for like three years. And so I knew that that would fit in um, to these, hopefully to these, you know, Christmas classics in a cool way. Um, And to fully answer your question, the band is so hip, you know, Ben Williams and, and Jairus. So they're not playing like the fifties, everybody's playing very much like today, but captured in that way. So I thought it could work, you know, to be totally honest, it was a, it was a risk 
sure. a very expensive risk ah, that I took. Ah, and I'm very, ah, I'm very happy that it worked out. <laughs> yeah. ah, 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 ah. Was, was this your first time working in analog, working in straight, working the tape? This was the first time com- going completely analog. Yeah. 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 So, and you recorded the whole album in one day, correct? Uh, basically a day and a half. Okay. Yeah. Was yeah. that, was that an aesthetic choice, a, just an artistic challenge or a budgetary choice? It was a schedule problem. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, yeah. We had, we had three days and I was like, Oh, nice, luxurious three days. Cool. And then some, some things got moved and some musicians weren't available. And all of a sudden it was this like nail biter, like, Oh, because half of the other day we were filming uh, a music video as well. So we really, the pressure was on me. Essentially we had one day to like really nail it. And, and we did, you know, and, and it's funny because that pressure actually worked in our favor. And I think you sort of have to have that pressure when you're recording the tape, because if you don't get it, if you don't, if there's nothing to capture, then there's nothing that, comes across, you know, sure. but it, it definitely wasn't my original plan. <laughs> <laughs> the snow is snowing, the wind is blowing, I can weather the storm, what do I care, how much it may storm, I've got my love to keep me warm. So, so how many, how many takes would you do on a song? Um, we did pretty much one or two takes. I don't think we did any more than three takes. I think there was like one song, have yourself a merry little Christmas, which sounds, I think it's kind of the most modern sound. It was a little bit harder finding our way into that one because everything else was sort of like so like obvious, you know, like the Christmas song or Christmas in New York was kind of like, this is what it is. And I think Aaron came up with that intro that I think they came up with that as the outro and we ended up putting it on the intro too to kind of make it this thing. So that, that one took a little bit longer, but when I say like took a little bit longer with these guys, that that means like an extra like fifteen minutes. I mean, right? They're so good. <laughs> they just they're so good. You know, it's it's amazing. And I and I have to say, like working with Aaron, um, he's such a perfectionist. You know, I I thought I was a kind of a perfectionist, but I realized he's he's actually a perfectionist. Yeah, like yeah. he's and and to again to hear him say at the end of the session like this is really good, like was a huge compliment. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. You know, the part of the reason I ask is I always, one of the things I always think about with jazz recordings is that, you know, every time it's performed, it's fresh. Uh, unless, unless the musicians are hacking every time they go sure. to work, every time they go to play it, there's going to be something fresh in there. Mm. And so I would imagine that if you cut, three versions uh, of any song in there 
every song is going to have something worth keeping. And there's in every song and there's going to have, you know, un- unless you literally someone just stumbles, each one of those could have been the keeper. Yeah. A- and so, you know, I often, you know, realize or think about with a with a jazz album how often, you know, this is the the last version, but not necessarily, you know, there is no authoritative version. There's no one version that absolutely nails everything perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. When you were listening to these, what were you prioritizing as you were deciding which one to go with or decide when do I call it? When do we say we've, mm-hmm. we, do, we, we put enough time in on this one? Let's roll on. Great question. Um, I think I always prioritize the mood of a song, you know, and, Thankfully, nobody like messed up anything, <laughs> you know. Um, and I think I think the the choices that we made were honestly the ones where we came to the song with the most authenticity. You know, like we really. I remember we did my favorite things, for example, and the first take was we did two takes in the album version. It's the second take, and the first take is very like. It's good, but it, it still feels a little bit indebted to Coltrane's version, obviously, because it's the version. And we weren't quite being ourselves, you know. And then when we all said, you know, that was good, but like, let's try one more. And everybody sort of said, okay, I'm going to like put my mark on this song now. And that's, and I could feel it happening. And I think that's kind of part of it too. It's like, I'm in the same room with these guys um, trying not to like drop my coffee cup during their solo or something, you know, and to feel it just unfold and to kind of feel that the interplay between them, that's really what I want the listener to have. You know, I think that's what makes jazz so cool. Um, Cause like you said, it is that moment. So, you know, like on my favorite things, the way that Aaron Parks enters and kind of like just announces himself. I was like, man, I, I want the world to hear that, not just me, you know. And that's what's kind of cool about being a producer um, and a label owner is that we can say, hey, now we can we can share and we can share part of our world in the way that we see fit, you know. Yeah. But I, I like what you're saying. That's a really cool idea. Like there is no definitive, necessarily like version, you know. Yeah. That's you, awesome. You brought up my favorite things which is going to ask you about because it, it was simultaneously, obviously like the most obvious choice and the least obvious choice, because if you take a run at it, you're taking a run at a John Coltrane Christmas song. And the fact that yeah. Marcus, uh, Marcus Strickland is playing soprano clarinet, a soprano sax, which Coltrane is also playing on that original made, you know, it seemed like, sort of the gravity that you know his version exerts would almost inevitably pull you toward it or or ask people to a b you and a coltrane track um yeah why decide to take it on at all but great question <laughs> <laughs> um well talia and i did like just like so much research and um we we saw that 
it's it's not really a, a Christmas song, but there are all these like holiday songs, right? And my favorite things is one of the top ones. And I said, you know, I would love it. It's a Jose James Christmas, right? It's Merry Christmas from Jose James. So for me, having like a, a full, like real jazz version of my favorite things felt right. You know, it felt like I want this album to be the kind of album that I would put on in my house for the holidays and my kind of fans and my kind of people. Um, so, you know, we have like the Jay Dilla kind of beat on this Christmas. We have, you know, Marcus Strickland playing a very long and, and serious solo on my favorite things. And in a way I wanted to sort of challenge the perception of like what a Christmas album can be and what, um, what, what musical celebration sounds like, you know? And what was really cool for me is that Marcus and I were both in McCoy's band at different times. So, you know, we also lost him during the pandemic and for us, it kind of felt like this spiritual, like uh, acknowledgement of, of this master who we had learned from. Um, But I couldn't have done it with any other band. I'll tell you that much, (laughs) you know, Sure. Yeah, because it's like they single-handedly had to, you know, pay homage to the original and, and respect that, but find their own voice in it, you know, and I think they really did in this cool way, you know. on roses, whiskers on kittens, rock up a kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with string. These are a few of my favorite things. You just mentioned uh, this Christmas, uh, your version of the Donny Hathaway song and uh, and the beat on it, which is kind of the one nod to hip hop in here. What made you decide that this Christmas was the place where a, a more hip hop oriented beat would make sense? Man, you have some great questions. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it's funny, like I am, um, I'm very instinctive, you know, and I kind of hear a lot of things with a hip hop beat. I think it's just because I'm a, child of the nineties. So I'm, I'm always thinking of songs like that's how I did save your love for me um, on black magic with like the Jay Dilla beat. I'm always kind of hearing a lot of songs in that way in my head. And I wanted to do this Christmas. And, and here's the thing, like I, I must've listened to at least a hundred Christmas albums doing research, you know, again, from like the forties to now. And when it came to this Christmas, everybody sort of did like a faithful recreation of it. And to me, just having done the Bill Withers tribute album, I was like, it doesn't feel like the right place because, you know, Donnie, it's Donnie Hathaway, Donnie's voice and his, what it meant to him in that moment, it was such a, it, it, it's just gorgeous, you know? So I didn't want to, I didn't want to go down that path um, 
but I wanted to bring my own vibe. And, and it's funny because I guess, you know, I'm called like the jazz singer of the hip hop generation. So putting that beat on it is just sort of like a little like nod to the B-boys and the B-girls is like, I'm still here, you know? Yeah. And again, this is a Jose James Christmas. And, and I think it's just kind of like finding a way to, with, you know, the hip hop, um, I don't, I don't know what the word is, but like, I think that's my contribution to to jazz in a way. You know, me and, and Glasper and Christian Scott, we're bringing in what we learned from rap and hip hop musically, you know, not just the, the lyrical content, but the actual form and the rhythms. And to me, that was a way to like pay homage to, to Donnie and also move it forward and make it so we could feel like it was ours. Because I think that's the hardest thing for any artist to interpret. You know, it's like when you have these giants like Donny Hathaway and Coltrane and Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald sort of psychically looming over your work, you know, you have to find a way to um, have your own voice come through. And, and I think it's when you take on the responsibility of the lineage, the musical and cultural lineage, that's sort of the key, yeah. you know? yeah. This may be just sort of dovetailing off of that, but you know, throughout your career, you've taken a pretty fluid approach to genre, and 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 you mentioned Christian Scott, who I, I've interviewed before as well, and we've talked about you know when he was talking about stretch music, and yeah, can you talk me through the way you think about jazz, hip hop, R and B, and the blues, and as sort of your expression? Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting because I think the the way that I arrived at jazz is pretty unusual because I actually learned about jazz through hip hop samples. So the the setting of that music was so cool and like new, you know, with the Tribe Called Quest or the Beastie Boys or, you know, any of those kind of like 90s, early 2000s bands. So I guess I've always thought of jazz as like this eternal thread through all American music, you know, and that just, that just was a given to me. And then when I actually realized, oh, like this is, there's a whole catalog of records they're pulling from. It was like this beautiful discovery. So it was kind of funny because I, it's like I discovered like hip hop, crate digging and production and traditional jazz in one like fell swoop, you know? Yeah. And, and I love the whole thing. So to me, it's like, it's, it's easy to go from, you know, Louis Armstrong to Mad Lib. Like it's not like a, there's no, there's no distance in my concept about it. You know what I mean? So told, I'm gonna get to know you better this Christmas. And as we trim the tree, how much fun is gonna be together? This Christmas, firesides blazing bright. 
know, the, I think the beautiful thing about jazz in particular, you know, you can, and you can say about blues too. I definitely, you know, did my, my due diligence with that, but in particular with jazz, it's so well documented with the sidemen, you know? So if you get like a Grant Green record, you're like, Oh, who's on piano? Oh, this guy, Herbie Hancock. And like, then I would go and look up Herbie Hancock and it was like, Oh, he's got all these records. And then I would see who was playing drums. It was like, Oh, Tony Williams. Who's Tony Williams? You know, I mean, I was like 14 and there's no internet. So it was really important for me to kind of do this research and, and to be autodidactic in that way. And like you said, let it sort of like, just be a, a moment of discovery. Um, and there, and, and there was no one, it's like when I go to, to see modern art, I tried not to look at the label, the, you know, the, who is it by and what, what does it mean? I want to read it after, but I try to like, just look at the work first and like experience it. Sure. And it was the same way for, for jazz. It was like, it like when, and, and when I did start studying it, I did start from Louis Armstrong on. So like when Charles Mingus and Monk hit me, it was like, Oh wow, this is shocking. You know, it was like actually shocking. Cool. So on the album, you do a version of uh, the Christmas Waltz at a little snappier tempo than Sinatra does it. And I was yeah. wondering if there was a version or other versions that influenced the way you thought about the song. Great questions again. So that's, uh, that's Tali's favorite song on the album. And we actually had a lot of, discussion she's she's like my uh my my number one person to run ideas off of and we talked about that because sinatra has that pause you know it like it the retard and this and then they're back into tempo right song of mine and we kind of like loved that and and it was like how do we do that song without it um but i always heard it as just going through and, and, that, and that that actually it's it's funny that you pull that out or it's it's smart that you pull it out because that's the one where I kind of went in and said I want this song to now live in more of the modern jazz world I want it to feel like a jazz waltz I want to put it into my favorite things territory or green sleeves um and it was really hard to do actually really kind of hard to like reimagine it and to place the lyrics in a way that felt relaxed, hopefully like the way Sinatra did it, but also um, it's in this modern jazz setting. So, you know, I have to say like, I'm, I'm such a huge student of Billie Holiday and Betty Carter and Abby Lincoln and, you know, these great women who were able to really phrase on ahead and behind the beat and they helped me a lot you know um but yeah that that one i love it's super fun to do and you know it's it's also it's it's funny because sinatra is such a dominant force in all this christmas stuff him and that cole so it's it's not just the sound of their voice like if you really know music what they were doing with their phrasing was so mind-blowing so to be kind of aware of all that, in a way, I kind of had to like forget about it and just say like, 
Okay, I just have to be me now. Like frosted window panes, candles gleaming inside, painted candy canes on the tree. Santa's on his way. He's filled his sleigh with things, things for you and for me. It's that time of year when the world falls in love. It's funny, I actually was going to ask you about singing songs that you've known all your life. And Mm. so many of these songs are ones that you have, you know, you've heard since you were a kid. You've heard Donny Hathaway about as long as you've been listening to music. And, and, you know, and, uh, and I was kind of wondering if it's hard to... To, you know, sort of to get the song out of the format you're you're used to, out of the rhythm and the phrasing that you're used to, and get to hear it in this context and get it to, to lay mm. out in this in the in this form. It is hard, actually, um, and and I think not every song works. You know, I think that's at this age, I'm 43 now, this is my 11th album. I think I finally figured out how to make an album actually, you know, which is that some things just don't work and then you just don't do them. You know, in the past I would like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It I get sounds that so simple. Yeah. Um, so the things that didn't work, I just move on and, and it kind of shows you the shape of how it wants to be. And I have to say, doing the tribute to Bill Withers um, gave me this really, uh, I guess secret's not the word, but I got a technique. Um, I took lessons with a, a great acting coach in New York named Andy Gale. And he had me take the lyrics apart from the song, put them on a sheet like a monologue and, and do, a, do monologue work like an actor with just the words away from the song. And I really hated it. It was really foreign to me. But after a couple months of it, it, I started to realize, oh, okay, now I'm now I'm having my own relationship with this text. I'm giving my own feeling, my own my own emotions. And to me, for this Christmas record, that was absolutely crucial because on these songs, like you know, White Christmas, particularly White Christmas. Um, I mean, that's the most famous Christmas song of all time. You know, that's the the top of the mountain, you know. Yeah. And for me, the only thing interesting um, that I could bring was how, how I feel about the moment, you know, how I feel about missing my family during this pandemic and, and living in Amsterdam and this kind of, this uh, there's sort of a thread of longing in these like World War II era songs, right? Where it's like, I'm thinking of you so far away and hopefully we'll get together for this holiday or in this reunion. There's this, you know what I mean? There's that feeling. Yeah. And it's it's like nostalgia and sorrow and longing and romance all wrapped into one. And, you know, one song we didn't do was um, I'll be home for Christmas, which is a great song, obviously, but it felt a bit too, it was an outlier, you know, and that's one where we said, okay, that's not quite it. But I put that same feeling into White Christmas. And, and I think once you have that emotional kind of reference, 
then the production values, it's easier to make those choices. So we said, hey, you know, we're going to just do just me and piano. I don't know. And actually we were like rapping for the day. It was like a break. And I said, can we just do White Christmas really quick? Like just me and you, Aaron. And he was like, oh, okay, you know. <laughs> and then we did it. And and he hated it, actually. He hated his performance. He was like, that can't go on the album. And then we walk into the control room and everyone's like weeping and like, oh my God, that was incredible. So it's just funny, like, um, I don't know. Making records is, is it's, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's funny. It's emotional. I mean, it's, I'm so happy to be back doing it again, honestly. like the ones I used to know Thanks to Jose James for the time and the talk, and thanks to you for listening. At this recording, he has a handful of dates lined up for October, and he'll be on the Blue Note at Sea cruise that leaves from Fort Lauderdale on January 13, 2023. You can get details on that, including other performers, at bluenoteatsea.com You can stay up to date on James' schedule at josejames.com If you miss an episode, you can certainly check whatever platform you're using to get this one, or you can go to 12songsofchristmas.com and that's the word 12 written out. I have every episode archived there. I'm also doing what I can to keep you up to date on Christmas music news on Facebook at 12 Songs of Christmas. Again, 12 written out. Recently, I posted a link to a playlist of Christmas music from the Marvel miniseries Hawkeye and news on a new Christmas album coming this season from singer Joss Stone. If you haven't already done so, like, follow, subscribe, or do whatever you have to do to get 12 songs in your regular podcast feed. That helps the algorithms work for us and makes it easier for others to find 12 songs. Let's wrap up today with one more from Jose James and Merry Christmas from Jose James. We'll close with his version of Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow. Talk to you next week. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. Since we've no place to go, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. It doesn't show signs.